Well, it's great to be here with you this morning and uh, good to be walking through this series. We are in the second week of a series here, and as we're walking through this series called That They May Believe and Have Life, right? There's purpose in this cross, there's purpose in the resurrection, and that it's that people might actually come to trust in Christ and have life in Him. And uh, man, we're walking through the realities of the cross, okay? And so over these next few weeks here, we're going to be talking about purpose of the resurrection, and we're going to be talking about the power of the resurrection, and we're going to be talking about the fact of the resurrection. It is true. And uh, we launched last week as we jumped in on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and uh, just a huge celebration here, making much of our God, and we're continuing forward as we walk in John chapter 20. And uh, our goal is going to be to see the truth presented of the resurrection and the power of it. You know, uh, this world uh, is wrestling with truth in a lot of different ways. And in fact, kind of desiring to dismiss truth on a lot of fronts. The world today likes to present truth as something utterly subjective. Just ask yourself, what do you think about it? And then that's the truth. And they're trying to anchor into how you feel about it. And don't get me wrong, there are certain things that are very subjective, right? What's your favorite color? And I might have an answer today, and I might have a different answer tomorrow. And uh, it's okay that those things are subjective, and it's okay that those things can move around, right? And so some things are subjective, but some things are not. And all of God's people said... And we got to anchor in that truth. There is absolute truth. We can know it. We can experience it. We can taste it and trust it and lean on it. Truth. Man, we have to anchor in the absolute nature, the reality of truth. And, uh, you know, we wrestle with it on so many fronts in this society, and we see people struggling with truth when it comes to biology and truth when it comes to um, different statements about facts of our God and truth when it comes to the facts about even reliabilities of manuscripts and all these kinds of things. And, and they would prefer to set it all aside as subjective so that they can declare where they want to head and be able to stay on their own personal track. And uh, just so you know, uh, God has a very clear message. It is uh, steeped in truth, and we can know what the truth is, right? And so as we walk through today, we're going to be looking at and beginning to introduce this whole concept of truth at a higher level. Just so you know, um, our society loves truth so much, we decide to make movies on it. We make shows about it. It's kind of ironic because as much as we wrestle with trying to sell to everybody that it's subjective, when you actually turn on the TV or when you go to a movie, they're so often about uh, the facts and the justice that should be had because of it, right? All these shows that are about um, law or, or they're about the police forces and these movies are big hit. In fact, I just wrote a few movies down over the years. Here's a couple of TV shows. A uh, big one that's big right now and has been for a while, Blue Bloods. Uh, that's on TV, and it's actually kind of a combination of a family that has to do with law 
uh, and the police force, right? It's both sides. And, and so they come together, and at, at least one point during the show, each time they end up with a family gathering around the table where they're chatting about their perspectives on life. And uh, they talk from a legal perspective, and they talk from a police perspective, and they kind of speak to what's going on in this world. It's an interesting show. It's very well done. Uh, there's another one called Law and Order. I'm not going to tell you nearly as much about that one. Uh, but Law and Order, same thing. You've got a lot of police and legal involved in it. There's been some movies. Um, a Few Good Men. A Few Good Men was a great movie that rocked and uh, A Time to Kill. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. It's a very rough movie. It's a true story and a, based on a very harsh experience that went down. But it was about the legal experiences of getting justice for a, a little girl who was injured very badly. And... Um, my Cousin Vinny. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> these are really big movies. Just so you know, these did really, really well at the box office. And uh, Amistad, that was a movie about the legalities around slavery and trying to shut it down. And uh, Philadelphia, uh, that was a painful movie to be uh, watching. And uh, it was a tough truth that was going on and some of the legal rights around those wrestling with uh, HIV and some of what was going on with that. Uh, and then here's a nice old school one, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, taking it back a few uh, decades. But uh, man, there's been some great movies out there about justice and truth. And uh, I'm just telling you, uh, the whole salesmanship thing on subjective truth is uh, really out of whack. Uh, there's just something that beats deep within us that longs for the truth and for justice. And we're going to be talking through a lot about the truth of the resurrection. And uh, so from a legal perspective, how would they go about proving things that are true? If everything is subjective, why would you even have a court of law, right? You just ask people how they feel and you're done. But we are trying to get to something that actually happened. What are the facts? And, and so just so you know, there are really three types of evidence that would be used in a court of law to verify something is true, okay? The first is like physical evidence, right? And so this is where they bring out like the knife and it had blood and DNA on it, something like that, right? It's physical evidence. You can get your hands on it. You can measure it. You can look at it. You can see it. There's a physical evidence element and that usually speaks the loudest in a legal case, right? The physical evidence. And then there's the documented evidence, Documented evidence. This is things that are written down that have been somehow strongly verified, right? It's not some guy just picked up a napkin and wrote something down on it and hands it across, right? That doesn't go well in a court of law, right? You're like, well, I think I'm innocent. Why? Well, I have this napkin here, and, uh, and it says I am. And uh, really, that goes nowhere, right? But, but if you have some kind of uh, thing written down on a document signed, there's been eyewitnesses to it, there's legalities surrounding it that say this is verifiably a true document, man, that goes a long way as evidence. So there's physical evidence, there's documented evidence, and then there's testimonial evidence. Testimonial evidence, that's where people are sitting down and saying, uh, I, I saw this, and this is the way it looked to me as I was standing beside it, and this is what went down in testimonial evidence. And uh, just so you know, testimonies, they're only so good, right? Because the reality is at some level, the person could be not telling the truth. And how do we know? 
And so you're always looking for a few things with testimonial evidence. Number one, like, how does it align with the other facts? Does this testimony really work? Does it connect with the other facts we've seen and heard? And uh, there's also another statement at hand when it comes to testimony. It's character. What's the character of this individual giving the testimony? See, when you get a, a wobbly character, uh, all of a sudden you're like, I don't even know if I should trust what this guy's thinking and saying, right? And so character's a big deal on it. And then one last piece is, how are they living it out? Like, are they living as if they believe what they're saying is true? Or is their life kind of heading another direction? So you can imagine a guy stands up and he's like, I saw him yesterday there. It was that man, right? And then the defense attorney comes up and he's like, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Did you go to the eye doctor last week? Well, yeah. Were you found to be legally blind? Well, yeah. So really, we can't trust what you say, right? The first thing you try to do is discount the witness. You try to take out their character. You try to show how it's misaligned to the facts. You try to show that in some way, there's no way it's possible what they're saying. Or maybe you even try to get to the point where you're like, you're not even living what you're saying is true. And uh, testimony. Because people lie, we have to make sure we can measure it. And we have to be careful with it. Hey, I'm just telling you, as we start to walk through John chapter 20 and 21, John is going to walk before us a bunch of testimonies, okay? He's going to bring testimonial witness. But here's the deal. The people he's bringing, they firsthand experienced physical evidence. They were there. They tasted. They saw. That was real in their life. They had a physical evidence experience that to them sold them on it. But then as things move forward in time, now they are the ones sharing out and telling. They've become a testimonial witness to what they saw. John is building up evidence that the resurrection is true. And he's going to be walking testimonial witness before us, person after person and group after group, to reveal out people of high character and quality where their stories align with the facts and they're going to testify that they have tasted and they have seen and they have heard that he is risen. They have met Jesus Christ post-cross alive and they're giving testimony to it. So we're going to be pouring into these passages with one job at hand. God, convict me of this, the purpose of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, and the truth of the resurrection. Lord, may I hear from you. And all of God's people said, all right, so here we go. First point as we turn to John chapter 20, verse 11. We're going to call the first witness, your, your honor, the first witness we're calling is Mary Magdalene. We're calling her to the stand. So point number one, witness called. After the resurrection, Mary was called to move from disbelief to hope. After the resurrection, Mary was called to move from disbelief to hope. And, uh, starting in verse 11, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And uh, let's just hold right there. 
It starts with the word but, and when you see these kinds of words, they're connecting words, right? And so it's contrasting. What's it contrasting to? Well, look at verse 10. It says, then, this is after John and Peter ended up seeing the, the clothes laying on the ground and the head covering folded up and set aside, the tomb open. They've seen physical evidence that something is different. Jesus is no longer in the tomb after that, and they had come to the conclusion he must, maybe, he is, could it be? And they're hoping he's alive. They end up, it says, the disciples went back to their homes. Now, apparently, they didn't run into Mary and didn't share it with Mary. So it starts, the disciples went to their homes, verse 11. But, you hearing it? But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Mary didn't go home. Remember, Mary showed up early in the morning. We talked about this last week. Early in the morning to grieve over the loss of someone she loved dearly and deeply. And uh, she was there to celebrate a life and long for the one that she loved. And uh, just so you know, uh, a good Jew would usually spend seven days in grief and mourning. Seven days. Seven days, and when they were in good grieving mode and style, that meant no bathing, no washing, no changing of clothes. You put on dark, black, you apparently probably stink pretty bad, and you go and you grieve hard at the tomb. And uh, Mary was over there to grieve. And so as they ran out, and went home, Mary in some way either didn't cross paths with them or didn't hear from them. And so she is at the tomb in full grieving. And it says, Mary stood outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So she's basically kind of stooping down a little bit to look inside. The graves that they used were basically uh, often kind of stone or rock of some sort where they would cut a hole in. It would usually be a little bit shorter, and so you would have to kind of duck down to get into it, and that's why she's stooping in. The, the stone that would have been rolled in front would have been maybe just about a head high, but it would have taken two, three, four guys to roll in front of it. Remember that from last week? And so it's rolled aside, and she's standing out in front of the tomb, and she's weeping, and she's wailing, and she's longing, and then it says she stooped and looked in. It doesn't say why. It doesn't say what got her attention or what changed her thoughts all of a sudden, right? Could it be that she's sitting there and whining and wailing out loud, crying, and all of a sudden she notices that there's almost something different coming out of it, like there's a light coming from the tomb. Could it be that? Maybe. Could it be that after a while of standing in front of the tomb, she all of a sudden was like, I wonder what's in there, and I, and I should look. I'll just check. I never checked before. I just saw the tomb was open, and then I ran, and, and maybe I should look more. And, and Mary stoops to look into the tomb, and we're not exactly sure what got her to look in. But then it says, and she saw two angels in white. That might be a little tip-off for us that she somehow either heard something communicating with each other in there, thought she heard voices, or maybe she heard a little bit of rumbling in there as they were moving around, or maybe there was light coming off of them. We don't know. It doesn't say. But as she looked in, there were two angels there. And uh, here's the catch. Um, 
I just read the phrase, and she saw two angels, and we all were like, sure, okay. Because we always see angels when we're walking around, right? And uh, no, this is a huge deal, man. This is a big moment. And we get used to reading the Bible where really there's so much in the Bible that is a big deal. We just start reading it and we're like, okay, then fact there, okay, keep moving. And uh, man, live this, feel this, imagine you're Mary, the proper response to this sentence is a huge gasp and response, so get ready, we're going to live this big, here we go. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into it, and she saw two angels in white. Now we got it, okay? Make sure you read Scripture for real, man. Like, think about, what would that have been like? Be blown away as you read it, and yes, it should take your breath away. Two angels are sitting there. And uh, can you imagine? I I don't know what I would do, but I guarantee it, the first move would be this. Right? Wouldn't you first take a step back? Like, what is that? Who is that? And, and, uh, and she saw two angels in what color? And what color do you wear when you're grieving and mourning? And so they're not. And, and we need to take this really to heart. There's a couple of things being said. We often see angels as dressed in white. It's a statement of their holiness, their purity. And there's part of that. But they're also coming to a graveside tomb in white. That is unthinkable. That is inappropriate at the highest levels. They're not grieving. And they're like, that's right, we're not grieving. We're here to make a statement. Jesus Christ is risen. Like, that's why they're here. He is risen. He's alive. I'm telling you, we have come with an announcement of the greatness of the power of Christ, and it is not about grieving. Give me some white clothes, right? And so the angels have come, holy as they are, pure as they are, and celebratory as they are, dressed in white. It says, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the foot, And uh, so the angels come in, and they're, like, getting set up. The tomb's open, and they're like, okay, we're going to have to make a little presentation here. Mary's going to look in in a little bit. we got to figure things out. What do you want? You want the head or you want the foot? Okay, all right. You got the head? I'll take the foot. Okay. And then they sit down, right? They're, like, chit-chatting with each other, and they sit down, and they've made their decision about where they're at. And and, uh, one had sat at the head and one at the foot. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Okay. Let's just talk about that for a moment, right? And so when we would say the phrase, woman, (laughs) it's not really the most respectful phrase in our society, right? And uh, if you were to walk into my house and I was like, woman, (laughs) you'd be like, hey, Tim, let me give you a little tip. It'll go better for you today if, right? And uh, woman, uh, but that phrase was a very respectful phrase. It was speaking to her maturity. It was speaking to her um, as a person. They were calling her out. They didn't have her name that they were using, but they were using a statement of respect. And a woman, why are you weeping? 
Now, when you go to a cemetery and you're standing beside a tomb and you ask someone why they're weeping, you are either really informed or you are really dumb, right? There's really no two other choices. There's no other choices than that. They're asking an unthinkable question, and in fact, it's a bit offensive, and there's a lot going on here as they ask, and they're like, why are you weeping? Here's the catch. Just so you know, this was a code question. And the angels and Jesus have already talked ahead of time and they've got it all square. We're going to see it roll out in just a little bit. So the angels and Jesus have already agreed what the question needs to be. Why are you weeping? And this is what they're really saying. Come on. Open up your eyes. Open your heart up. Come on. I'm asking you a question. Start answering this question. Get in this with me. Why are you weeping? And... uh They're looking to draw her heart forward. They're calling her from where she is in devastation to seeing what's actually going on. Man, this is a call to go beyond what your eyes have just taken in over the last couple of days and see what's happening. Why are you weeping? Mary responds to them. She says, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And uh, Mary answers with what she has seen. She's not stepping out beyond. She's answering just what her eyes are taking in. And she's like, why am I weeping? Well, first of all, I'm weeping because I've lost a dear friend and I'm not even going to go to that one because that's like, no, duh. So I'm going to give you a little deeper explanation My friend that passed away was in this tomb, and now he's not here. And why am I weeping? Because I'm here to grieve, and he's gone, and somebody took him, right? And so then she gives the, they have taken him. And uh, this was the same answer she gave before. Remember last week when we talked about it, they, right? Because that's what we always say when we don't know, and we need to blame someone, and we want it off of us, right? They took him. They who? I don't know. They. They. They, those people, the people who would take them and not talk to me, they, those people, they, they took them and they went somewhere. I don't know who. In fact, we're going to see how much she doesn't know who in just a little bit. But she says, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And uh, don't forget, this was a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and so there really could almost be a very reasonable assumption that somehow somebody decided, ah, maybe this loaning tomb thing wasn't a good plan. And maybe they're doing something about it. And so, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they have taken away the Lord, my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. Let it sit there. Look at the next sentence, the next half. But she did not know that it was Jesus. She turned around, and she's standing with Jesus, and she didn't know. How could she not know? How in the world could she not know it was Jesus? 
I mean, really, the first and most obvious solution that you come to when you've come to grieve for someone that you watched die on a cross is not, oh, Betty's standing next to me. Right? That's not the first position you come to. And so in your grief and in your sorrow, you're almost just looking down. You look and you just kind of catch a glimpse and there's somebody standing there and I don't know who it is. And, and, and so you're like looking at the two angels and now you're like, wow, what did I just see and what am I talking with, right? And then you turn around and there's a guy and you're like, all right, there's somebody here with me too behind me and we're going to see more of who she thinks Jesus is in just a second. Mary. She's got her eyes of pragmatism on, not her eyes of hope. And the angels have called her with saying, woman, why are you weeping? In other words, put on your eyes of hope. Hang on. See beyond what you're seeing. Think about this. Hope. And, uh, you know, Last week was Easter Sunday, and we had a huge celebration here as we went after it for Jesus Christ, all for his fame, all for his glory. And all of God's people said, man, it was an awesome celebration as we rallied friends, family, and this church together and went after it, uh, packed it out. I'm just telling you, um, love to see people rally to make much of Jesus Christ. And uh, the numbers thing... Not as big a fan on numbers as I am on the quality of following after Christ with all I've got. But the number last week is astounding. Like the largest number we typically have had for an Easter service has been about 3,100. And uh, last week we had 3,900 plus people show up here. Over 800 more people. Amen. Amen. Man, over 3,900 people showed up saying this. Let's celebrate Easter together and make much of Jesus Christ. This place was packed out all day long. We had three services, 9, 11, and 4.30. And man, it was amazing to watch as God stirred people, brought people in, and they were just amped up, ready to make much of Christ. And a huge time of celebrating that He is risen. Man, we went after it with all we had. I was brought to tears. As we get to the end, the close song, making much of Jesus Christ as our hope, our Messiah, our Savior, the song is amping up Him forever reigning. The the anxiety in the room almost raising up as all of a sudden it gets to the end and we all explode into a cheer and an applause that lifts this roof off. And it goes on for a while. I'm looking around as I come up on the stage. People are wiping away tears. They are screaming out loud. They are whistling and applauding for their Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, this place was on fire with hope for Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, man, I'm just telling you, I love celebrating and making much of him. And as we got done with those services, uh, after each service, people came up, and I had one or two people uh, after the first that came up and said, I love coming here. People here believe in Jesus Christ, and they're excited about Jesus Christ, and you believe this, Tim, like you're on this. I love being here. And there is something about being around people who have 
hope. And all of God's people said, our job is to see not with our eyes, but beyond. To grasp all that's going on. To grasp a testimony of people who are sharing what they saw so that we can see not just what we see in a limitation in a moment, but beyond that with all we've got. To understand and grasp that God is moving in this world, that the Holy Spirit was moving in this room, that Jesus Christ is real, he's alive. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds saw him after the resurrection. Man, there is hope. Jesus Christ, he did not just die. He rose again. Yes, he brings a covering for our sin, but more than that, he brings a hope of life eternal. And we can trust in him. Hope. Everybody just say the word with me. Hope. That's what it's all about. The resurrection brings hope. The angels dressed in white. And they said to her, why are you weeping? They're calling her to hope. Question. How are you doing that you're hoping in Jesus? How's your hope? Are you counting on his promises? Are you counting on his resurrection? How is your hope? Number two, believe. Believe in Jesus. He spoke with and was physically seen by Mary after the resurrection. Believe. He spoke with and was physically seen by Mary after the resurrection. Jesus said to her, so remember, she turns around, she doesn't recognize him. Jesus now says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Does that sound familiar? Well, let me ask again. Does that sound familiar? Right? These are the same exact words, right? And they have talked together. The angels and Jesus have agreed. Here's the question we're going to use to call to hope. Woman, why are you weeping? And uh, remember, Jesus being super respectful here as well uses the phrase woman. This isn't a disrespectful moment. This is a respectful moment. As he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now we get a little insight to Mary's heart. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him. Now let's just get this clear. The gardener would be a person that would be working in and around the tombs. So that would be a reasonable assumption. The gardener would be somebody who'd be working in and with the different florals and the greeneries and some of the trees and clipping and some of that stuff. Just so we're clear, the gardener was like on the lowest of low of the social scale. Okay? Lowest of low. That's the gardener. So as she turns around and sees Jesus, she's presuming early in the morning, working in the area around the tombs must be the lowest of low guy. This is her practical thinking. It's got to be the gardener. Now, to be super clear, the gardener would have never, ever, ever, ever been allowed to move a body. That would not have been his job. That would not have been appropriate. In fact, that would have been violating so many different rules along the way. Keep that in mind as she has some things to say. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Sir, if you have carried him away, in other words, Sir, 
all right, look, if you just did what you shouldn't have done, just tell me what's going on, and I'll, I'll, I'll just take him and put him where he needs to be, all right? Just, just don't worry about it. I'm not trying to get you in trouble. She could have said this, sir, if you have taken him away, that's it. Your head will roll, right? If you have taken him away, I am so going to tell someone on you, right? Like could have, could have gone that route, said, sir. If you've taken him away, just tell me where you took him, and I'll go get him and move him from there. She's like, there is no issue. I'm not trying to make a big deal out of this. I just want to get him to a good spot. Will you please work with me? Can you hear her reverence, her respect, her kindness? Even in the midst of the duress, she's being super sweet. And she says, and I will take him away. Jesus, remember being supposed to be the gardener, said to her, Mary. Just hang on and picture that moment. Remember, before he said, woman, why are you weeping? Now he says, Mary. And in that moment, she is hearing her name, right? That's the first word that had to hit her. Wait, 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 wait. How's the gardener know my name? I don't know the gardener. Who is this guy, right? That's got to be the first moment where you're like, when he says Mary, you're like, yeah, how do you know my name? What's the first thing you do? Look closer, right? Dig in and make sure you're getting who you're talking to. Who is this guy? How do I know him? And what's his name? And, but more than that, it wasn't just that he knew her name. The tone of voice, the way it was said, the way it resonated in her ear. She had heard this before. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, now she switches. She's off of Greek. She's into Aramaic. She's going to the home language. This is our language. She starts talking amongst people. She's talking to her people. She's recognized that it's her people. And she says, Rabunai, teacher. Like all of a sudden she got it. Man, you've got to picture this moment. It goes like this. Massive wailing and weeping. I don't know what's going on and why, and I miss him, and what's with the open tomb, and, and, oh, man, the people in there, and she steps up close, and angels in bright white, why are you weeping? Why am I weeping? They've taken the Lord away. I don't know where they put him. That's why I'm weeping. (laughs) Whoa. Hey, gardener man, if you're the guy who took him, will you just tell me? Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Ravunai! He's alive! Amen, man, he's alive. We gotta get it. You, you read this passage and you skip through two or three verses and you miss that she went to the grave to weep. And she walked away celebrating Jesus Christ is alive. She has met him. She has now cried out, teacher, you're alive. 
Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Now, in our American setting, we're like, that was rude. <laughs> right? And we picture this moment where she's like, teacher. And he's like, well, lady, give me some space. <laughs> and uh, everybody say, it's not that. Okay, it's not that. And uh, it doesn't even say how much time passed between when she said Mary and when he said that. But this word cling, it literally means to touch, to hold, to have a passionate relationship with, okay? And so most likely when she said it, she also ran to him and threw her arms around him, probably around his legs as if to say, you're in charge, but she grabs on, she's probably holding on. This isn't just a metaphorical cling, this is most likely she rushed to him and grabbed him and while she's holding on and weeping now, not tears of sorrow, but tears of joy, now he's calling her into action. And so he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, man, I still have 40 days of work ahead here. Hang on. Now he gives two verbs. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, go and say. Go and say. And uh, what are the two verbs? Go and say. Be my witness. You hearing it? Testimony directed by Jesus Christ. Go and say. Now you need to hear me on this. This is a really big deal. In this culture, women were considered sort of the kind of a second-rate citizen at some level. There was sort of a little bit of a, a, a down in the social scale. And so if this story is going to be a good Jewish story, the right move would be you grab the top dog. You get the highest believing male, and he's the guy who gets sent to tell everyone. The fact that he turns around and says, Mary, you're going to be the first witness of my resurrection is a huge moment as he says, I'm all about humility, and I'm all about equality. And I'm all about bringing this thing in a huge way. And so you, you are going to represent to this world that I am alive. And the humility that gets brought as Christ ushers in the lower messenger and says, get ready. You're going to rock this world. You're the first messenger. That's the way we're going with this. Jesus Christ, he loves to work through humility. He loves to work through humility. And all of God's people said, man, anchor into that. It's a huge deal. And uh, he says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord! Now, just so you know, it says went and announced, but in the original language, it says Mary went announcing. Like she couldn't stop telling about it. I've seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Come over here. I have seen the Lord. Let me tell you what happened. I have seen the Lord ongoing, nonstop. You want me to go and tell? I go and tell. I will make much of your name. She was going and she was telling she is a witness of high character. Her story makes utter sense with all the facts. 
and she is willing to live it to the bitter end. Testimony. Jesus Christ, he is alive. He is alive. And all of God's people said, man, that is a huge, huge deal. And, uh, and the top three reasons that keep us from seeing Jesus Christ as alive. Number one, we misunderstand God's power. Could he really do something like that? He creates the world with the spoken word. Yes, he can do something like that. Misunderstanding God's power. Number two, misunderstanding God's knowledge. Did he really know this was coming? Did he understand he was going to the cross? Did he grasp that he was, was this really the plan? Does he understand what's coming next with, yes, God knows. We can misunderstand his power. We can misunderstand his knowledge. And number three, misunderstanding God's love. Does he really care? God is love. It doesn't say God is loving, meaning sometimes his character expresses something that looks like love. God is love. He embodies love. Everything, always, all the time, in the midst of, God is expressing love. And man, that's something to wrestle with in and of itself. But know this, we can misunderstand and cut short God's love. And all of a sudden, we don't grasp the cross and the resurrection. Hear me. He is risen. He has the power. He has the knowledge. And he absolutely has the love. He is risen. He is revealed out through testimony with high character. It aligns with the facts and they're living it to their bitter end. He is risen. Do you believe? Romans 10.9 says that we need to believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and confess him as Lord and you will be saved. It does not say that you must believe just going to be very careful now. I need everybody to be able to listen to this well because you got to be able to quote me and don't misquote me tomorrow. Ready? It does not say you must believe that he died for your sins. Everybody say it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. You must believe that he has risen from the dead and confess him as Lord and you will be saved. Why talk about the resurrection? Because it is the power and the knowledge and the love of God expressed into this world, declaring victory over death and sin. And we have hope. And all of God's people said, and that's what it's all about. Do you believe? Are you anchored in hope? Are you trusting in your king? Let's go to prayer.